so yesterday. Yeah. Yesterday morning, I went into my study, like, to start work for the day, mm. right? And there was a giant butcher's knife and a roll of duct tape sitting on my desk. And I was like, um, so I like, call Andrew. And what I'm like, fuck? I really hope you put this knife and, and, um, and duct tape on my desk. And he's like, yes, he goes, that was me. And I was like, what the hell? I was like, do you know how frightening that was walking in this morning? Apparently Holy he like, couldn't get the dog food open the night before and had to, I was like, so you grabbed, you didn't grab scissors? So it wasn't even like a plant. It wasn't even like, Rick's going to find this hilarious. No. He literally tried to open, oh with my a, God. With a giant butcher's knife. And then left it on your desk. And then left it and then needed the duct tape to like seal the dog food back up. Oh and I was like, God. there are no two worst possible combination no. of things that no. I could have walked in and not found like Jesus so terrifying. <laughs> what was he thinking? I know. Oh my God. Good one, Andrew. Did I ever tell you about the weird letter that I got in our mailbox? No. Okay, so when we first moved to our new place, I got this letter in the mailbox. Like I was picking up the mail and I got home from work. Um, and I, it just was addressed to Shane and I, like both of us. By name. Yeah, by name. Yeah. And our address and everything. And it was like a, it was like a printed label on the front. And then I turned it over to open it and someone had handwritten Captain and Maria, <gasps> kiss, 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 like, and I was just like, what the, what the fuck is this? And so then I walked, like I was straight away had this awful feeling. I walked into the house and at the front of our house at the time, our computer was there visible from the street and we had a, an external hard drive called Captain and Maria but had a label on it. But like you'd have to, you'd have to be like there to see that and there's no other reference to what that means to Shane and I. Yeah. So Shane was at parent-teacher night that night. So I was on my own at home. I sat like in downstairs in the house in the middle of the house where there are no windows and just cried for like four hours what it turned out to be was that um the receptionist at the conveyancing place had seen us in the sound of music and loved our performance so much <gasps> that she wrote a little handwritten note on the back of the letter that she prepared to send to us from the, the fucking conveyancer oh my god and i called shane we're at parent teacher and i and he had to like calm me down on the phone because i was like <laughs> Because you were sure that someone had looked through the window and seen that. I was sure that someone had yeah. been like. Stalking you. Yes. Yeah. Jesus. Fuck. Hi, Ruth. Hi, Josephine. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm pretty well. You caught me a bit by surprise. I can see that. Yes. Because you haven't even got any clothes on yet. Oh, my God. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Welcome to My Favourite Musical. It's a podcast. Well, yeah. Yeah. That's Ruth. That's Josephine. Yeah, we're your hosts. This, this is episode 40. I know, episode 40. Crazy. Is it? I think know, it is. Every podcast I listen to when they reach some sort of milestone are always like, who thought we would get this far? <laughs> <laughs> it's that Paul Rudd clip where he's like, Look at us. You know that meme. <laughs> That's right. But also, like, I didn't think we would get this far. No, it's true. It's true. I thought I would have quit by now. It's Josephine and I, when we saw each other today, because we were so used to seeing each other every week for so long to yeah. record, and now it's every two weeks. And it's we, not enough. It's not. We're just like, I missed you. Yeah, it's not good. It's yeah. not good at all. Yeah. I mean, we could meet socially, but, like, why? Yeah, whatever. Why would we? <laughs> Business only. Uh, so this is the podcast where we talk about our favourite musicals. Yes. And as of I think like 20 episodes ago, each each 
10 episodes, yes. we cover a major musical, right? Yeah. Every round number. Well, lots of, what? Yeah, 20, 30, 40. They're all round numbers. Are they? Yeah. Is that what that is? Uh-huh. Oh, okay. Every round number we cover a big <laughs> musical apparently. Together. We didn't do that for number 10, Soz. No, but we did each cover separately a big, a big musical. Yeah, we did. You did Sound of Music and I did Les Mears. That's true. Yeah, it was a big episode. I think yeah. it's still our longest episode. <laughs> it would have been. Yeah. We were probably speaking at double time too yeah, to get exactly. through all that. Jeez. Yeah. Um, sorry. It, it means that we also can sort of cover musicals that we wouldn't necessarily have picked ourselves as a favourite. Oh, you wouldn't have chosen today's musical? <laughs> You would have chosen it before I would have, I reckon. Which is saying a lot. Yeah. So, Ruth, do you have any apologies for us? No. Me neither. Good. What's your spotlight today? Okay, so my spotlight is related to our episode today. You're so smart. Thank you. And we will get into a little bit more why exactly this is related, but I'm Mm. covering the Asian-American playwright David Henry Huang. Um, So we discussed him sort of briefly when I covered the musical Soft Power in a previous spotlight, which is his musical. He did that with Janine Janine Tesori, Tesori, right? Yeah, Yeah. it was was at the public. It's the cast recordings on Spotify. I highly recommend listening to it. Um, And, uh, you know, no spoilers, obviously, because you have seen the title of the episode, but today we're covering Miss Saigon. And uh, he was sort of directly related to (laughs) – are you shaken? (laughs) He was sort of directly related to the scandal that happened when Miss Saigon was moving from the West End to Broadway and the casting scandal that erupted. So we will cover that more in the actual episode, but that's sort of his his connection. So his most well-known play is called M Butterfly, Mm. and that is – also somewhat based on the opera Madame Butterfly, same as Miss Saigon is. Yeah. Um, it won Best Play at the Tonys. Um, what year was that? Oh, that's a good question. You know, I don't have I'll it written out, down. But that was at, at the stage that he won that, he became the first Asian-American playwright to ever win a Tony Award. It's going to be some embarrassingly recent year, isn't it? Uh, I think it's – I'm going to say like it's late 80s, early 90s. And Still like, embarrassingly yeah, recent. Yeah, but I can't remember exactly what. Okay, I'll find out. There is also a very good film based on the play and Butterfly, um, which stars Jeremy Irons and John Lone. Um, but, uh, yeah, I highly recommend the film. Do you uh, like Jeremy Irons? Sure. I don't know that I have an opinion either way. I think I'm really attracted to him. Uh, okay, I'm not. <laughs> But good-o. 1988. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. I thought it was pre-this, so that makes sense. Yeah, Yeah. only just. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think that was the idea, like, he just won Best Play. It was a big deal. And then Miss Saigon was like, you think you've come forward? Yeah. (laughs) Get back into colonial Um, times. He's also written the books to several musicals, including Aida, which we've discussed before on the podcast. Yes. He did a rework of Rodgers and Hammerstein's um, Flower Drum Song, obviously, because that was, like, very outdated and racist. Very racist. Um, and uh, he wrote the book to the stage adaptation of Tarzan and also Soft Power, which we previously discussed. He also loves using real events in his works, as we discussed in Soft Power, which was mm. based on events that actually happened to him. He wrote a play directly after the Saigon controversy happened called Face Value that was it went to Broadway, but it closed during previews. Like it was a massive flop. Like it didn't even open, oh, which was a real um, shame. But that was in 1993 that was sort of based on a similar circumstance to what happened with the Miss Saigon controversy. Like that's what the play was about. Can I and tell then, you that he was 31 when he wrote M Butterfly? Oh, amazing. And won that Tony. That's incredible. That's crazy. He also later wrote a play called Yellow Face, which was about a playwright named David Henry Huang. 
producing a Broadway flop called Face Value. That's awesome. About the Miss Saigon casting controversy. <laughs> like, yeah. he's just very, That's like, awesome. intertextual like that. I just, I love it. So, yeah, yeah I just highly recommend his work. Yeah. He's amazing. Definitely, like, go out and find his stuff. Yeah, and definitely apart from obviously um, being quite outspoken about issues in his work, he is like an activist in, in exactly, the day-to-day yeah. life. Like he is yeah. on the front lines. Just, yeah. Yeah. He's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. What about you? My spotlight today, I want to talk about identity conscious casting. Ooh. So we've spoken about colourblind casting and colour conscious casting in the past and we're now moving towards – Um, what is termed identity conscious casting, which is a term I'd never actually come across. So, of course, um, I was on HowlRound, as I like to do. Yes. Um, Some light reading. Just some light reading on HowlRound. Just ways to make me angry. Like I get really, yeah, anyway. Um, There was this really excellent discussion between Lavina Jadwani who talks about how identity contains multitudes and race is just one small part of that. So we need to stop just thinking about colour conscious casting and start thinking about the entire person and what what a whole person is made up of, which mm. is not just race or colour. So um, the idea now is we're talking more about gender and, and like, not even like um, colour but a person, what am I trying to say, what a person sort of identifies as mm. rather than what they are strictly um, – so it's just a really interesting concept that is only just now sort of making its way into the conversation. Yeah. But I really love this quote from the piece. Um, so she said, all this points towards the ultimate goal of liberation. For me, liberation lives in a place of intersectionality, which is saying, yeah, yeah, of course it does. Yeah. Like, why do we keep thinking in these absolutes? Yeah, we're all multitudes. We contain multitudes. Yeah. Like it's, yeah, so I love that. And this is so relevant to the Miss Saigon bullshit, but like, Let's be a bit more thoughtful about that. Yeah. Let's just be thoughtful about how we think of people. Yes. And they're not just race or gender or whatever. They're not just like a casting breakdown. No. Yeah. And I know that we're getting slightly better at those things, but we're still we're still talking in those terms. We're still talking about race, even though we're saying, well, we're going to be more conscious of it. We're still talking about gender. Like, yeah. <sighs> None yeah. of it matters. Well, no. Everything it, is It made all up. matters and none of it matters. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So, yeah, that's my spotlight. Yeah, awesome. Mm, Oh, yes, we're talking Theatre Explained. Yeah, do you have a Theatre Explained for me? Yeah, we're talking a limited run versus an open-ended run. Nice. And what those terms kind of mean. Yeah, tell me. So, for me, and this was a funny one because it was kind of, you couldn't really research it as such. You know, like most of the times when we do Theatre Explained, they're terms that we can research. Yeah, I had a lot of trouble. So, I'm going to rely on you for this one. Yeah, well, instead I've just kind of written down a whole lot of information that I'm aware of. Yeah. Yes. So essentially a limited run means that there is a set closing date before the show opens, Uh, whereas an open-ended run, you know, means that they are hoping it will run for a long time, essentially. Like, And generally actors in an open-ended run would be contracted for a year. Mm. That's sort of the general you would get, even if the show closes after three months, like they've signed a contract for a year and they would stay in the show for that length of time. Yeah, That's like a musical generally. Um, Oftentimes a limited run is used – I would say much more in plays than in musicals. Yes. Uh, it's like somewhat rare for mm. for music for for a commercial musical. 
Um, I, in my research, I found that it was a lot more common in revivals. Like it's yes, it's definitely. more common for like we're just going to bring this back for two weeks. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and with plays, it's often because you have stars appearing in mm. them. You know, who like let's say they're a movie star and their schedules are just yeah. such that they don't have a year no. to spend in a play on Broadway, kind of thing. So yeah. they'll do a six, sixteen weeks is a very common yeah. limited run on Broadway, so like four months. How flexible is it to change from a, a limited to an open ended? Yeah, like, so it's like. A does happen but we depend on the theater availability right so for example the other reason is that limited runs are common is if it's like a subscription style theater so you know we talk about like the roundabout theater a lot or in the uk somewhere like um the old vic or the menier chocolate factory or somewhere like that where like this is our schedule this is our summer show that's right this is our 2021 season kind of thing so obviously you can't have an open-ended run when whatever show needs to open in july you know yeah um so that is often why they're limited runs there now what you'll sometimes see in places like that particularly in the uk they might do a limited run at one of those venues and then transfer to the west end for an open-ended run um and you do see so like lincoln center in america in new york is a good example where often things would start off as a limited run but say they might then announce like you know that it's become an open-ended run for Mm. example say like some of those big rogers and hammer signs they've done like a my fair lady or you know something like that um but yeah it does happen from time to time that they start limited and if they're incredibly successful how do you feel about open-ended runs just generally well to be honest I kind of wish I mean so I made a note that in Australia we just it's not a thing right so in Australia shows are booked the theatres are booked we've got so few theatres and so few shows that they're booked several years in advance Mm. so you just can't do an open-ended run because you know, the next show is booked in. Yeah. Um, also, we do have two very clear major city centres. Yes. So it's difficult to like, you can't just sit in Sydney because yeah. you, you'll miss out on all that amazing Melbourne yeah. traffic. And exactly. we're definitely not used to travelling for shows. Yeah. Like, it happens a little bit, like hmm. um, particularly from other states that aren't those, aren't Sydney yes. and Melbourne to those cities, right? Yeah. Um, but certainly. Well, like Harry Potter is an open-ended yeah, run, Yeah, so right? that I was going to say like, so in like the 11 years that I've been at Playbill, that is the only open-ended run we've had in that yeah. entire, like that I have worked on in that yeah. entire time. So Harry Potter and the Cursed Child opened in Melbourne a couple of years ago and there's no set closing date for that show. Yes. But as far as I'm aware, that's the only one I've worked on that has had that. Yeah, I can't think of that any. In that 11 years. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, they've been very clear that like they've had to make such major adjustments to that theater that there's no way it can travel whereas most shows in australia will do x number of months in sydney x number of months in melbourne maybe go to brisbane maybe go to adelaide maybe go to perth right um and so that's always part of their plans tour whereas yeah that's just a bit different i'm sort of really torn about it and like it's probably not something i should even have an opinion about but like I love that people, like for open-ended runs, that people get the opportunity to see like an iconic show or whatever, but also like things get stale and let's just do new stuff. Yeah. But also I see like the economies of scale yes. of keeping a show in a theatre, like it's much cheaper to do that than to like keep trotting out new shows. Yeah. I get all of that, but I think. And uh, also it's it's jobs for actors, well, yeah. you know, it's, it's very tricky, isn't it? It's tricky. So I feel torn. We've talked about this before, but I think one of the, up very few upsides to the to the COVID pandemic is that when all those long running shows reopen on Broadway, I do think there'll be a freshness to them that yeah, they I haven't had so. in a long time. Yeah, I hope so. I really, I really hope that that's the case. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 
the benefit now that I'm thinking about it of, a, of an open-ended run is for actors who then have like a permanent job. Yes, it becomes a job. Because like most, particularly in Australia, most actors are just casual workers or yeah. contract workers contract who workers, yeah. would only have like a three-month contract. Or, yeah. And like here in Australia when COVID hit, they weren't even eligible for like job payments yeah. because they technically didn't have a full-time job That's or a permanent right. job. In fact, it was interesting because as far as I'm aware, Harry, po- Harry, Harry Potter. Potter and the Cursed Child is one of the only, is basically the only actors in Australia who would have, so, you know, in Australia we had this job keeper which was, sort of to do with actual sort of salaried workers getting payments from from, from the their employer yeah. through the government. Um, for example, that's what my company received. Yes, um, because, because you were unable we, to conduct your normal business. Exactly. Yeah. And so, but the Harry Potter actors, a lot of them had been contracted and part of the stipulation was that you had to have been working there for 12 months or yeah. more. And a lot of them had been yeah, because the show great. had been running. So a lot of them were eligible for it. Yeah, but so many others would not have been. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Do you have any recommendations for us? I do. Tell me. Okay. My first one, which I texted you about during the week. Okay. uh, But I don't know if you've watched it yet. Okay. (laughs) It's a documentary that's on Netflix. Oh, yes. And it is called Bathtubs Over Broadway. And I'd actually heard of this documentary for quite some time, but I hadn't watched it yet. And then I found out that it was on Netflix and got very excited. So this guy is a writer, was a writer for Dave Letterman for many years. um, And he, there used to be a segment on the late late night with David Letterman where they would um, sort of find old records, weird records, vinyl records, and play them on the show as a bit of a, a comedy bit, right? Mm. And in doing so, this guy found a copy of a, a vinyl record that was from what they call industrial musicals. Now, industrial musicals were I've never heard that term before. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, so I, I I knew I knew a bit about this. Um, I knew that it was a big source of income for particularly Broadway actors for many years. Wow. That you got paid a lot to do them, um, and that that was actually a way that you could sort of sustain living in New York and that sort of thing. Particularly, I think it starts in like the fifties or sixties. They finish in about the, like, late 80s, something like that. And basically these were when those big corporations would come to New York for their big sales meeting, annual general meeting, they would have commissioned oh, so it's really a, a musical. Corporate. Yes, they would have commissioned oh. a musical about their company, about and maybe it would be kind of like a teachable moment about sales tactics or something like that. So like a lot of like big car companies, IBM, wow. like all these big big corporations. And so... You know, and there are people that have written some. Bock and Harnick wrote them. Kander and Ebb wrote them. Like Shit. massive composers wrote them. And this guy who wasn't even a musical theatre fan, right? And and this is the documentary is centred around his sort of journey with it. Yeah. Just stumbles upon the world of these industrial musicals and these vinyl records weren't for sale. They weren't for commercial sale, but people had the, like they were produced as part of these industrial musicals. And so he became an avid collector of these Vinyl records well, and, so niche. and memorabilia from these wow. industrial musicals, and he interviews a bunch of people that were involved, including including Sheldon Harnick. He's in is in the documentary, and um, yeah, it's really great. He he ended up writing a book about it um, after David Letterman like finished because you know it so went off cool. the air a few years ago. And anyway, the documentary is excellent. I highly recommend everyone watch it. Tell us the name again. Uh, Bathtubs over Broadway. Love it yeah. on Netflix. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait to see that. Um, and then one just other quick one. Yeah. Yeah. is that on Disney Plus um, 
people have been campaigning for it for a long time, but the Cinderella, Brandy Cinderella from the yes, 90s or early 2000s, whenever it is, is finally on Disney+. Plus. So if people want to relive that magic, it's excellent. It's her, Whitney Houston, yeah. Whoopi Goldberg. Yeah. Incredible. Just watch it. It is so good. It's so good. Like it's so ahead of its time. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Anyway. Just to let you know it's all there. That's awesome. Yes. What have you got for us? Okay. I have the best recommendation of all time. Okay. No, Ruth, seriously. I'm so excited. The Spotify gods have been listening. <laughs> and Sunday the Park with George is back. Amazing. I know. So was it there and it went? Yes. It used oh. to be there. Like maybe two years ago it was on there. Okay. Disappeared because those fuckers. And now it's back. Oh. And I cannot tell you how joyous this is for me. So I this is I the original Broadway cast? The original, the original Broadway cast recording is now back on Spotify. So you can listen to Sweet Sweet Mandy singing Finishing the Hat as many times as you want on Spotify. How did you discover it? Well, I do regularly check. <laughs> <laughs> so I can't be sure when exactly because I, pr- I probably check once a month. Yeah. But I just like I just type in finishing the hat just to see and, and then I get sad when it's only Jake Gyllenhaal's version. <laughs> so the other day when I did my monthly checking, there it was. That's amazing. I'm not going to lie, I also check for Tick, Tick, Boom and the original cast of Songs for New World nice. fairly regularly as yeah, well. and you get disappointed. Yes. So this is still the best news ever. And I don't need to give you another recommendation because th- this is enough. This, <laughs> I think this will cover me for like 10 I'm more episodes. I'm very happy for you. I can't, I'm just, I can't even... Oh, I love it so much. <laughs> Sunday in the Park with George. Go listen. Amazing. Yeah. Do you All want right. to talk about music? Let's do it. Oh, Let's man. get into it. I'm going to put my seatbelt on. Okay. Do you want to tell me your connection with this show to begin with? Let's not call it a connection. Okay. We're talking about Miss Saigon, by the way. We've oh, yeah. said that. We're going to talk about Miss Saigon. I would actually be happy to never talk about this show, honestly. <laughs> I think it's a wreck. I think the show's a wreck for many reasons. Um so I was trying to think about my, like, my history with it and I realised that the very first opera I ever went to was Madame Butterfly. Yep. Um, I went there with my mum when I was about 11. Yep. So at the Sydney Opera House and I loved every second of it. Like yep. I just adored it's a, it. I'm del- it would be one of my favourite operas, it's definitely. It's just so beautiful. And even though I like, I know I had no idea what was going on, it was just so dramatic and so beautiful and she's so tragic. Like, yeah. Oh, my God, she's so mistreated. Um, so I loved Madame Butterfly. And then I remember I took my mum as a birthday gift to her to the 2007 Sydney production at the Lyric Theatre starring David Harris. Right. I didn't I, see that one. Well, that's fine. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> as Chris, right? Yeah. I found that to be just like mildly everything, just eh, yeah. mostly laborious. Like I just found it to be like, ugh. What I bet your mum loved it. Oh, my mum was over the moon yeah. about it. She would still talk about that to this day. Um, I know this is really predictable for me that I'm like, oh, Miss Saigon, but it's really not good. It's not good, guys. Yeah, I. You keep going. No, that's my okay. that's my connection. You tell me your history with it. So this is a show that I never. It was never really in my yeah field of vision until I was an adult. Like. I didn't. I didn't see that that production. Mm. I didn't. It wasn't a show that I listened to a lot growing up. You knew the songs, though, right? C- kind of. Yeah. Not really. Because I've sung a few of them. Yes. I and I can see how that. Like, yeah, you would have sort of probably known it. I would have heard them, but mm. not really. I mean, Buidoy was probably the first song that I like would listen to. Like, yeah. had on mixtapes and yeah. stuff, you know. But but not really. Yeah. Um. But this is one of those ones where. 
as an adult in my line of work mm. because we have done the merchandise for this show, yeah. I have now seen it many, many times. Yeah. You know, the first production I ever saw was um, – uh, your friend Toby Francis as Chris. Oh, in, like, I saw that production Bankstown too. Yeah, Theatre Bankstown. Company or whatever. Because my friend um, Kat's eye was Kim. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so so I saw we went that to one. support them. Yeah. I saw that um, one too. That's the first time I ever saw it on stage. I remember. Yeah. Um, and Toby has a glorious voice. He was Beautiful. Perfect. Um, Chris. But yeah, and but like professionally, I hadn't seen it until the 2014 London revival, which I saw. Before I was before we were doing the merchandise for it, yeah, so just right. on a trip to London. And what were your thoughts? Um, it was funny because I saw it with Andrew, yeah. my husband Andrew, and, and he colours everything, doesn't he? And he and he hates Miss Saigon, like <laughs> hates the music and everything. Justifiably, um, no. Look, I thought it was. I just remember being thinking that the performances were some of the best performances I'd ever seen. Yeah, because it was it was Eva. Yeah, and um, Eva, and and also I thought the John was incredible as well, and and the engineer, to be honest. Yeah. Um, and I, so I do remember like loving that and like thinking that, and I still think this, like, I think that some of the music is very beautiful. Like there are songs definitely. in it that I love. Yeah, definitely. Um, and also like those performance, those are hard roles. Yeah. Massive. So to, to come out of that show saying that those were good performances is actually a really big deal. Yeah. Like this is not an easy show. Yeah. And I do think that there were improvements made with that production, like in terms of the orchestrations and mm. things like that. Um and, you know, I've now seen it probably about seven times professionally, yeah. like a lot. Like, you know, we did we took over the merchandise of that production in London. We did the merchandise on Broadway when mm. it transferred. We've since done the US tour and the UK tour. Jesus. So, like, I have seen all four of those productions and the, both the Broadway Multiple and the times. London I've seen a couple of times. Yeah, okay. So, you know, I think I might have mentioned it before, but I went to the opening night of, of Miss Saigon on Broadway. It's one of the couple of Broadway opening nights I've been to. And that was very special, obviously, yeah. going to an opening night on Broadway. Of course. But... Uh, like as much as there are some songs that I love, my issues with the show definitely outweigh that for me. Yeah. Like in terms of if you could say, do I like the show? Yeah. Do I not like the show? They outweigh that for me. I'm the and same. I would also say that it's a real slog of a show to sit oh through. Oh my like, God, isn't it? It's, there's no real payoff to the like the sadness and weight of the show. Yeah. And it's funny. We always talked about like, why is this not a good merchandise show in comparison to the other big. Because you don't want to remember it. Yeah, but like those other big like uh Les Mis is also sad, right? But there is payoff. But there's hope in yes. Les Mis. There's like there's real like kind of yeah. um and revolution and you know, there's all those yeah. things. But you know, like we do all those big shows, right? Those big like the 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 British yeah, invasion, all those yeah. shows. And this I would say is definitely like the um lower sales for merchandise of all those shows. That's interesting. Um, and I think it is because it you walk out like, oh my God, I've just been through the ringer. Not necessarily in a bad way. Some people love that, right? Yeah. Some people love feeling that, you know, oh, I've been emotionally drained by this thing yes. I've seen. And they do it well, that's for sure. But mm. it's uh yeah, I would say that, that that's a big part of it. Mm. Um yeah. It's interesting. I I can't see any redeeming apart from moments of the music, there are no redeeming features for right. me. Like and so when you say like in the balance, is it worth it? I think so definitely not. Yeah. Like let's chuck it out. Yeah. Um, for those who don't know, this is a book musical by um, Bubble and Schomburg. Yeah. It's it's our lame is friends. Mostly through sung, right? Um basically. Sort of. Like there's some speaking, but it's like I think there's always music underscoring, basically. Yeah. But it's not really through sung in that way. Not oh, really. Well, not like Lame is, for okay. example. Yeah. Yeah. So by Claude Michel Schoenberg and Alan Bublil and lyrics by Alan Bublil and Richard Maltby Jr. Um, and based on 
Pacini's 1904 opera Madame Butterfly. Yeah. Do you want to hear the plot? Yeah, tell us about the plot. Okay. I've written quite a long one. Okay, so this is, like Ruth said, this is based on Madame Butterfly, which is just a tale of doomed love, question mark? Not really love. Yeah. Um, the setting is Saigon during the, during the Vietnam War and our main players are a 17-year-old southern Vietnamese girl named Kim who works in a bar and Chris, an American Marine. Uh, so the war is almost over and the Americans will be leaving Vietnam, Vietnam soon. But then Chris disenchanted with the poor, desperate, downtrodden sex workers of the bar that he's had to have sex with this whole time, <laughs> finally spots this beautiful, virginal, pure child, Kim. Oh, so romantic. So while it's supposed to appear romantic, he basically in the early opening scenes pays her for sex and she somewhat reluctantly goes along with it. Um, they fall in love. Yes. Beautiful. And Chris offers to take her back to America but then like the dodgy pimp, who like who is sort of runs the bar, the engineer, doesn't like that and a man that Kim has been betrothed to shows up demanding that she honour her parents' agreement and so there's all this sort of confusion. Fast forward three years because Chris has like gone back to America, uh, it becomes clear that something really bad has happened. So Chris is in America with a new wife, Ellen, and Kim is li- living under communist rule in Vietnam. She has a three-year-old son, Chris's son, and... Um, she shoots this like her the guy she was betrothed to shoots this higher up guy in the in the regime dead in order to escape him because it's so awful in Vietnam apparently that's what we're made to believe so Chris now works for an aid organization whose literal mission it is to connect children born during the war with their American soldier fathers that's their whole mission yeah and he finds out that Kim is still alive and has a son He tells his wife and they go to Vietnam to find Kim. Then there's this like Romeo and Juliet-esque misconnections section where Kim and Chris like keep trying to find each other but they don't. Um, Kim eventually realises that Chris is happily married and won't take her back to America and also like won't take their son back to America. Mm. Um, So she shoots herself effectively ensuring that her son is raised by Chris and Ellen, the end. Yeah. Yeah. That is also the version of the plot with the least amount of my opinion that I could possibly... (laughs) That I could possibly inject. Like, seriously, that's me, like, really trying to just give you the facts. Yeah. Did I miss anything? No, I think you got it all. I think you got it all. (laughs) Uh, Let's talk about how the show came to be. Yeah, And some productions. So, Schoenberg allegedly found a photograph from the Vietnam War in a magazine one day. And uh, the picture basically depicted a mother leaving her child at a departure gate at an airbase to get on a plane to the United States for a better life with the child's ex-GI father. And Schoenberg thought that the mother's actions showed an immense amount, amount of sacrifice and led him back to the plot of Madame Butterfly, but reimagining it as if it took place during the Vietnam War, right? Mm-hmm. I then couldn't really find much information about the actual like development, development yeah, of it. I it's, couldn't it, either. It's like that's where the idea came from, and then suddenly it's like it opens on the West End. Yeah. Like there's not much in between. But I mean, this is post. This is post Les Mis. Yeah. So they are, you know, incredibly successful yeah. composers. Um, so like, of course, right? Yeah, like, of course. of course, they can just take a show straight to straight to the West End. So, Miss mm. Saigon premiered in the West End at the Theatre Royal Drury Lane on the twentieth of September, nineteen eighty nine, and closed after four thousand two hundred and sixty four performances on the thirtieth of October, nineteen ninety nine. Actually, thought it would have been more. Oh, really? It's yeah. the it's the eighteenth longest running West End show. Yeah, so wow. ran for ten years, basically, almost yeah. exactly. Um, it was nominated for four Olivier Awards. 
but lost best musical. It, it never won best. It's never won best musical in any of the um, productions. It lost best musical. Do you know what too? Did you read this? Mm-mm. Return to the Forbidden Planet. Fuck yes. Yeah. I love Great that. Great show. That's so good. Yeah. That's uh, correct. And um, But Leia Salonga and Jonathan Price both won uh, Olivier Awards for their roles as Kim and the Engineer. Jonathan Price? Isn't he? <laughs> what? 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 <laughs> um, the musical debuted on Broadway, so it transfers to Broadway at the Broadway Theatre on 11th of April 1991 and closed on 28th of January 2001 after 4,092 performances. So similarly, similar. almost exactly 10 years. Yeah. It is the 13th longest running Broadway show. Mm. It was nominated for 11 Tonys at the 1991 Tony Awards. We have discussed the 1991 Tony Awards that particular year, several times before. Have as we? It, as it, yes, because it was up against Once on This Island. Oh, yeah. And The Secret Garden. And The Secret Garden. However, all three of those shows lost out. That's to right. Was it something really like Fiorello or something? The Will Rogers Follies. The Will Rogers Follies. Yeah. Oh, um, God. Leia Salonga. How, um, so, yeah, so that one, Will Rogers Follies won a lot of awards that yeah, year. Yeah, did, didn't it? Yeah. Cleaned up. However, Leia Salonga becoming the first Asian woman to win a Tony uh, for her performance. Yeah, and in the 90s. Price. That's right. Yeah. And Jonathan Price again won Tonys, as did Hinton Battle as John. Yeah, we've and talked about him. Yeah, we just talked about Hinton Battle on a previous spotlight as he's won three Tonys and should be a lot more famous than he is. Yeah, and also like John is a really hard role. Yeah, exactly. Oh, my God. Um, so then there's like a, a big break, obviously, yeah. for some years. And then the West End Revival opened at the Prince Edward Theatre in May 2014 and ran for two years until May 2016. When tickets went on sale, it was reported that it had the highest single day of sales in Broadway and West End history, taking in $4.4 million in its first day. It still holds that record, right? I think so. I mean, to be honest, that it that was what it was reported. There's no like kind of yeah, like, way to back that up. Yeah, right. If you know what I mean. I saw so that a couple of times. That was what like Karen McIntosh's limited like announced kind of thing. It's probably true. Yeah. I I mean, I think in the article that I read, it said that the next highest was Book of Mormon and it took like 2 million. Yeah. So like probably it does still hold that record. I don't know if Hamilton beat it. Who knows? Mm. Um, Karen McIntosh announced the night it opened that it had already recouped its investment. It wasn't a massive investment. But then it only ran two years. It was, it was an interesting like, uh, very successful at the beginning and then just kind of fell off, off, you know, fell yeah. off a bit of a cliff. Yeah. Um, that production transferred to Broadway. Uh, it started preview performances at the at the Broadway Theatre on March 1st, 2017 and uh, played until January 14th, 2018. So not even a full not a year. Huge run, uh, th- yeah. th- again, that uh, interestingly that we were covering limited runs this mm. this week because it was announced as a limited run. Oh, right. So and, they did extend it. And I it. have a feeling that would have been one of those things if it hadn't been so successful, they probably would have changed it to an open-ended run. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. interesting. Uh, all three actors who played Kim, the engineer, and Chris transferred with the show from the West End to Broadway. Yeah. There was also talk of a film for several years, uh, but there hasn't been any, any new info for, like, some years on that. So I would say that that is dead in the water. Um, but, yeah, that's that's some, some production. production history. Yeah. Let's talk some some facts, some fun stuff before we get into the heavy stuff. Okay, so I'm going to go to the fun facts section, not the serious talking points section of yes. my notes. Is that what you want to? Yeah. Okay, all right, okay. Miss Saigon has never been staged in Vietnam. Oh, well, what a surprise. I fucking wonder why. Yeah, yeah. That's a fun fact. <laughs> What's your fun fact? Um, <laughs> I've got a lot about cast. Okay. Let's talk cast because there's nice. some fun stuff there, right? Yeah. So um, John John Briance, who played the engineer in the 2017 mm. Broadway and West End Revival, uh, was in the ensemble of the original production. He'd like 
audition when he was in Manila, like growing up he in the Philippines. He wasn't like this was 22. his first job of like yep. anything ever. It moved. Yeah. To, so he was in the original West End ensemble, and he basically had like Miss Saigon has been this basically has been his, his career. entire career. Yeah. yeah, he played the engineer a bunch. He'd been in like various roles throughout his yeah. whole life. But yeah, so but that's quite full circle for him yeah. to like then play the engineer in that big revival kind yes. of thing. Um, I'd also love to talk about the incredible Eva Noblezada. Oh, Eva. Who obviously we already love for her work on Town and things like that. So I do love this story. I love a lot of things about this story. Yes. So uh, we've talked a few times about the Jimmys before, the high school National High School Musical Theatre Awards in, in, in America. America. Yeah. Uh, so she was, I think she was like, she was a final. She didn't win the no. year that she was in it. But like Cameron McIntosh's casting director like happened to be in the audience, Ugh. knew that they were casting for Kim, this yeah. Saigon revival, right? And so brought her in to do a session and just they all just kind of fell in love with her. Well, that voice. Yeah, oh, I mean, she's so incredible. But even like it was interesting because I've watched a clip of her performing at the Jimmy's, the, the performance that they would have seen. Yeah. And she was fine. Yeah. Nothing like what you not know now. what we know now, yeah, you know. Wow. Um, like she was very good but they obviously saw something and did a bit of a work and saw how well she worked. I, I mean, think, they under were that. right. Yes. It, she is a fucking star. She's like, a star. I mean, she's honestly, it's one of the most incredible performances I've ever seen on stage. Because it's not just that she has a literally flawless voice. Like yeah. her voice is perfect. Yeah. But she is an incredible actress. Incredible. Just yeah. wonderful. And so, um, you know, what? so what's amazing is they then, they kind of, decide she's going to play Kim in this West End revival. It's such a big, oh, wow. I know, I know. But then there's this thing of, because she's still in high school at this point, yeah. right? So then they're like, well, she's never had a, she's never done anything professional before. So instead of just being like, well, she's going to be Kim, they stick her in the ensemble of Les Mis for a few months yeah. to get her show fit. And it's, I mean, what a, it's that so is smart. a masterstroke of yeah. like, you know, because of course, you've got to learn how to do eight shows a week before yeah. you do Kim eight yes. times a week. Oh, she might, I don't know if she does eight a week, but certainly like a lot, right? Yes. She might only do six or seven. But um, When you're 17. Yeah, ridiculous. Yeah. And so she goes, she's in the ensemble for Les Mis for some months. So she technically makes her West End debut in the ensemble of Les Mis, yeah. but just doesn't, you know. Um, and, then, and then goes and plays Kim, obviously, to massive acclaim and then, you know, transfers with it back to Broadway yeah. and, and it's just, but I, well, mean, I mean, it's a similar story to what happened to Leia Salonga. It's true. Like, yeah. It's really similar. Yeah, exactly. Um, you, and yeah, you go. Well, I'm just going to tell more random fun facts yeah. that aren't related to cast. Great. There are 300 pounds of fog used for every show. <laughs> that is a random fun fact. <laughs> now you tell me more. Okay. So just some other cast members who I feel like we should mention. Just some great Ellens. There's been some great Ellens over the years. Well, Ruthie. Ruthie Henshaw uh, was an Ellen on the West End. Ellen Le- is the American wife. Yes, the wife of, of Chris. Yes. Um, uh, uh, Liz Calloway was the original Ellen on Broadway. Oh, my God, Liz Calloway. Yes, and then Tamsin Carroll, Australian Tamsin mm. Carroll, who's incredible, was the, with Eva Noblezada in the London Revival, yeah. was, was Ellen there. Um, and also I just want to mention that in – uh, Australia originally, Peter Cousins was Chris. Yeah. A lot of Australians would know Peter Cousins. Yes. Yeah. One, one more cast fact and then I'll, I'll go back to your random facts. I don't think I have any more. Oh, good. You've said all of mine. <laughs> um, the actor Luke Evans, who a lot of people would know who yeah. was in The Hobbit and he was, he was Gaston He's in the in live Beauty action and the Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. He started off in musicals yes. and he was Chris in a, in a UK tour of Miss Saigon. I don't think he could have sung that. Oh, apparently he's got a great voice. He does have a pretty voice, but Chris is tough. Yeah, but like he was in Avenue Q, he was in Rent, like yeah. he was in all these shows. Yeah, wow. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I didn't see it, but I just, I just 
love that this like legit musical theater yes. actor is now a mu- movie star. I mean, how many of those do we know though? It's so common, yeah. right? I know it's true. It's yeah, true. That's cool. Yeah. Oh, Luke. Do you have any more fun facts for us? Uh, no. Okay. Well, except that Leah Salonga was 17 when she first auditioned for yeah. the role of Kim, just like Eva. I watched that clip again of her audition. Oh, me too. Did you I've watch that this week? In, have you? Amazing. In the, in the show notes yeah. of this, this episode. Amazing. That's worth watching, everyone. Because she's like, she's a child. She is a literal child. And you're watching her in a room with like the composers, Cameron yeah. McIntosh. It's like this huge big audition room. It's like a chorus line. Yeah. And she's just like belting out sun and moon just yeah. being a legend i know i think i mentioned before but uh, there's a lady who works for us who's also like a tutor on a lot of broadway shows oh yeah yeah and um she was a tutor working on the miss saigon because the understudy kim was, 16 was still in school yeah. yeah like well because i mean she's young yeah you gotta be insane. young yeah. yeah um I just thought we should mention that the choreographer of the original show was Bob Avian, who oh, passed away recently. Who, of I course, didn't was know that. yeah, who of course was instrumental in um, the development of a chorus line yes. and um, involved. Did realise he'd um, choreographed this? Yes, yeah. he was the original choreographer. Huh. Yeah, so um, he was obviously a, a monumental, yeah, um, huge presence part of the industry. So I just thought we should mention that. Wow, um, I'm gonna. Get on to some – Okay, oh, No, no, no. I've got a few more fun ones okay, before we good. get serious. Um, so this show has a song called The Confrontation in it. Yes. Please tell me the two other famous musicals that have shows songs called The Confrontation in them. Jacqueline Hyde and Les Mis. Well done. Anyway, I just thought that was funny. <laughs> they all have a song called The Confrontation in them. But also like two of those musicals are written by the same people. I know. Can you not come so up true. with another name? Like yeah. seriously. And they're all from like within ten years of each yeah, other, right? Yeah, that's so true. Yeah. yeah. Um, there was a production in Georgia by the Seren Bay Playhouse that was the outside. The country or the state? Georgia, the, sorry, it's Georgia, the state in oh, America. Right. yes, yes. Yeah. Um, uh, that was outside and used a real helicopter um, that landed. Ah. Um, it was ca- caused quite a big stir at the time. A real um, heli- What a ridiculously yeah. wasteful thing right. to do. So this co- this uh. company is, was known for doing these like really kind of outlandish outdoor like like titanic on was like a boat garth um what was it what's his Drabinsky. name <laughs> no but you'll love this oh no so the guy that ran that theater company he was eventually kicked out like there was all this this is bullshit. he now in jail with garth Drabinsky? you are close oh no he became like a total maga like <gasps> trump supporter and no. he was in the capital invasion no. and has like been arrested yeah okay but Putting a helicopter, a real life helicopter, in the production of Miss Saigon, I think that is a that is a symptom of being a dickhead, <laughs> yes. right? Like, of so course he, he is. Was, and I, and and a lot of people, I read this really. I think it was in the New York Times. This really interesting article about him a few weeks ago, and basically. I think people think he's just decided to be like a, an alt-right guy <sighs> and started That's like trying worse. to trying to um, do productions and stuff like for them. Yeah, so clearly just some like money hungry, like I need a soulless. sound effect for me vom- vomiting. vomiting. Like, that I isn't need just that. you actually that isn't vomiting. Me just vomiting. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is the start of our. Also, I love that that was a fun fact. Well, yeah, <laughs> um, I thought so they're getting more serious. It's a good segue. Yeah, my 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 like full segue is that it was only in the 2017 Broadway revival that the marriage song lyrics changed from what was just gibberish, mm. so not real Vietnamese mm. dialect into actual Vietnamese dialect in the lyrics. And thus begins <laughs> my TED Talk on why Miss Saigon is trash. Okay, you go. Can I talk first about just like plot stuff? Yes. Problems I've got there. some notes too. Okay, so 
The entire relationship between Kim and Chris is not romantic. <laughs> let's just let's just start with that. This is yeah. not a love story. There is nothing romantic about this story. It is bullshit white saviour complex yeah. from beginning to end. In the opera, it's really clear that Pinkerton, which is the like the Chris yeah. character, is just using Butterfly. Yeah. And the tragedy is in her situation and being used by dickhead men around her. Not like lost love thing. Yeah. Why? I think they're even quoted in, in articles as saying like, because Pinkerton's clearly an asshole in, in Madame Butterfly. And, and in this, it's like they wanted to make Chris like not an asshole. So my thing is like, why? Yeah. Why do we want to do that? Why yeah. do we need to make white dickhead bullshit men appear nicer? Yeah. Like, no, really no. So I am very cranky that they feel they felt the need to romanticise this in the musical because it makes me very mad, as you can tell. <laughs> I have a lot more to say about it. Um, so in this story, Kim and Chris have this Vietnamese wedding, as Ruth has just mentioned, yep. before he leaves and, like, well, really just ditches her in Vietnam to go back to America. And Kim believes that they're actually married because it is it is a Vietnamese wedding ceremony. Yeah shock right Kim believes that they're married because they got married yeah of course the undertone is that actually Chris doesn't think they got married because US law supersedes Vietnamese law and yeah. like of course they weren't really married because as if he would adhere to the Vietnamese law when he's in Vietnam yeah. and might I add that when Ellen tells um, Kim that her and Chris are married Kim like literally does the same thing she goes along with it like oh the um, yeah the American like that's, that's right. when that's the point at which she changes her mind and exactly. is like oh the American wedding means more than the Vietnamese wedding yes but let's remember that Kim is only saying that because white people have written that into that's the script right. for her yeah. to say so like no one could possibly conceive of Chris and Ellen's marriage not being legitimate, even though Chris participated in a wedding ceremony. Yes. Like, what What the fuck? Yeah. It's just like this, oh, we're, we're Americans, we're white. Like, we're clearly better than you. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I also, you know, like she tells him she's a virgin, which he doesn't believe. Like he's like, don't play that with me kind of thing. Yeah. And then he just kind of like goes along with it anyway. Yep. It's just like such bullshit. Yeah, yeah. Buys, buys her. Yeah, like exactly. It's also like, so the music was written towards the end of the Cold War, right? So yeah. obviously, contextually, there's a lot of anti-communist sentiment, and that was still a really big deal at the time in the First World. But the idea that Kim needed saving from her own people mm. just serves to attempt to legitimize and justify the Vietnam War. I think. Like, yeah, I actually believe that that is the entire purpose of this musical. Is it just this like wanting to justify why the Vietnam War happened? And it's all rubbish. And like, it's, it's very just much bullshit. painted as like the Americans are the good guys. Yep. The Vietnamese needed saving. Yep. Like that is how the musical The communists is. were terrible. Like, yeah. But, yes, Kim was lucky that a, an American soldier came in and saved yeah. her. Like what the fuck? Yeah, and having to pick between this like evil communist man who she was, you know, like the the, the Vietnamese patriarchal structure of her being like set up in this arranged yeah. marriage. As opposed to versus like white American bullshit soldier. Bullshit white American. Buying her. Yes, exactly. Mm. Like that's the choice kind Pretending of thing. to marry her. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and mm. um, even, like, the fact that, like, John has been written to be portrayed by a black man yeah. um, compared to Chris as who is written, you know, generally to be portrayed by a white, white. man. Not that it says anything, but, like, historically that's yes. how it's been portrayed. Yes. And, you know, like, 
John is the one who loves the brothel yep. and like a He's very the sort bad of one. aggressive sexual person. I mean, not so much in the second act, but certainly in the first act. But also like he apparently in a lot of interpretations is the reason why Chris leaves Vietnam because John's like, hurry up. Get, and... get on the get on the but chopper like, kind of thing. Yeah. No, Chris is an adult and he made yeah. that decision. Yeah. And like, but yes, yeah, like very much it's like Chris is the like saintly, honourable white man, yes. you know. And might I also just add that, you know, he says he searches everywhere for Chris, but it's like for Kim. Sorry, for Kim says Chris says he searches everywhere for Kim, but it's like clearly not, clearly not. And like he gets married to Ellen pretty quickly, just all like things considered. Away. You know, yeah. just like uh, to the point where she's like, he's been, you know, they've been together for however long. Like yeah. he's just like, oh well, I guess I'll marry her. Yeah. But that's right. It's did not, you really love her then? Did you? No, Ruth, because no. it's not a romance. So, yeah. okay, obviously this musical is incredibly sexist, but should we talk about the history of very racist casting? Yes. Um, okay. And, and quite specific things. Oh, yeah. yeah. So the original engineer, Jonathan Price. Like incredibly respected. Oh. It was also like I didn't quite realise that it was such a big deal for him to do a musical. Yes. Like that he was, you know, he'd been playing Hamlet. He'd been, he was like this incredibly respected oh, yeah. English actor, right? And, I mean, now we know like he he has since done, like he was in Evita, also not great casting choices. Yeah. Oh, my God, Jonathan Price, yeah. fucking hell. But so he was cast as the engineer. And so the engineer as a character is supposed to be French-Vietnamese. Yes. Still Vietnamese, right? Yeah. Um, so Jonathan Price wore eye prosthetics and bronze makeup to appear Asian. I don't in the know if you're going to link to this video, but I am. If you're not, I there's, won't. A, there's a video of him on a it's a TV mm. interview in 1989. It's him and Leia on some TV show in the UK, I and he hate literally this. describes these prosthetics that he's wearing. And both him and the interviewer pull their eyes back to like show, show like what's go- like it, it is. I was oh I watched it today, and I was like. Oh my god! Like it really, honestly, took me aback so much that just like is another time. Honestly, well, I think too. Like, so the search for Kim at the time amongst like Asian actresses has always been highly publicized. And yes. So at the time, it was well known that they like, did a worldwide oh, search. We need yeah. to find Kim, and and let's look in all of these Asian countries to see if we can find Kim. But like, nothing equivalent existed for the male Asian no. roles. So literally like all of the female roles in the show are played by actual Asian yeah. women, right? Yeah. And they considered that to be important for yeah. it to be authentic, but just that just wasn't the case for the male part. No. So both in the original, both the engineer and Tui, the, the man that she's betrothed to, he was also played in Yellow Face. That's right. Yeah. We, you, ages and ages ago we talked about um, the Asian-American alliance. Yes. And this was a huge issue that they brought up recently that like, if you're a man and you're Asian, you are the least likely to be cast. Yeah. Like over uh, – anyway, God, yeah. I'm getting cranky. Because so, I think there's that thing like because with the women there's the like what people talk about with Orientalism and yes. there's that kind of like – Yeah, like re- uh, um, sexualizing nature for, and all that right. sort of and thing. And this show is so guilty of that, yeah. sexualizing of, of women. Yeah, yellow fever they call it when like white <sighs> men will only date Asian women and oh my God. it's a so whole thing. I've got a quote um, from Sarah Bellamy, who's a co-artistic director of the Penumbra Theatre, which is dedicated to African-American theatre. Yeah. But she said, it gets a lot easier to wrap your head around all of this for folks of colour when we remember a key point. This work is not for us. It is by, for and about white people using people of colour, tropical climes, pseudo-cultural costumes and props, violence, tragedy and the commodification of people and cultures to reinforce and reinscribe a narrative about white supremacy and authority. Yeah. 
And it's so true. And it's, Everything I mean, about this. When we talk about The King and I, when <sighs> we talk about Flower Drum yep. Song, like it's a similar sort of thing, right? It's for, by and about white people yeah, and it's yeah. just about how white people are the best. Yeah. That's all this is. So the, the controversy sort of came about. So Jonathan Price was in in England. No one fucking batted an eyelid, no. right? It was like, oh, my God, he's so incredible, whatever. Yep. Same with the guy playing Tui. Like yep. no one said Sitting anything. Into Broadway. And so when the show transferred to Broadway, there's this thing where because Jonathan Price was not American, yeah. you have to apply for a visa through equity, through the and union. And have a good reason, right? Yes. Like- well, it's either that – so there's, there's two ways you can qualify. You can be enough of a star that um, it's considered like – Yes. A benefit to the American economy that that you come over. Or that there is no one else of equivalent talent in in America who could could play the role, right? Yeah. We've talked about this in a couple of different shows. We have, yeah, we have. And in this case, they, I think that they were applying for him based on, because he'd been on Broadway before. Yeah. So Equity had approved him as a star. So they were, they considered him to be a star, right? Yeah. So that is what, but Equity um, decided, uh, so linking back to my spotlight from earlier, David Henry Huang and, and also BD the actor B.D. Wong. Yeah. So B.D. Wong had played the lead in M. Butterfly. Yeah. Um, and that, as we said, had just like just been on Broadway. Um, B.D. Wong, amazing actor. Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown, Jurassic Park. Yeah, incredible. Yeah, great guy. Um, and David Henry Huang was the playwright. They had written this letter to Equity basically mm. saying like this don't is do a, this. don't do this. Yeah. Like this is um, this is like yellow face. This is an, yeah. a white actor playing an Asian part. Uh, there how are can plenty. You say- yes, there are plenty talented. of actors. Yeah, um, uh, it's it's a lead role which never happens for Asian performers, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And Equity decided to deny the visa, yeah. right? So this was, I think, towards the beginning of 1990. Um, the show had gone on sale, I think, soon after. Like, again, some of the biggest advanced ticket sales that yeah. had ever had because, of course, this show was a huge hit in London. Yeah. And um, and this was a massive, massive story because, uh, it like, I read that. So even though this was the middle of, like, the Gulf War, mm. um, the, the stories about this scandal made it to the front page of the New York Times yeah. eight times in 1990. Yeah. Like, this was a massive story. Well, also I think at the time Cameron McIntosh was a really big name. He was, Like, everyone yeah. just knew that name. Yeah. Well, let's just say me as Phantom. That's like, right. all of like, that has already come out. He just had hit after hit and everyone yeah. knew Cameron McIntosh. So as soon as his name became involved in this scandal... Yeah. Like, so what I thought was interesting was, so what ended up happening was Karen McDosh actually cancelled the production. Yeah. He said, well, if you can't, if we can't bring it over with Jonathan Price, we're not doing, we're it. Not doing it, right? And what actually it seems, but it seems every newspaper, the general public, like equity were kind of on its own yeah. as to their opinion on this. Yeah. Like that's sort of what I found so fascinating and in researching And probably the this. entire Asian population, right? Yeah. Well, but no, this is the thing. Interestingly, there were a lot of people who weren't because they were like, I'm sorry, this is work for us. Mm. Him cancelling the show means 50 people don't get a job that would in otherwise ensemble, have a job. Yeah. And that's really how they felt about it, yeah. a lot of them. So but there what's was this- shit though, right, is that like did they just think that they like – like, well, this is the best we can get. So the best we can yeah. get is a role in the ensemble in Miss Saigon. Like what I – and I totally get that that is valid, but, like, let's throw the whole thing out. Yeah. Because, no, there should be an Asian man in that role. I'm, like, I'm going to read a quote that I was going to read later, but it's it's relevant here, which is from an op-ed that was in the New York Times in 2019 called Close the Curtain on Miss Saigon, and I'm going to link to it as oh, well. Oh, yeah, I love this article. Yeah, and so in it he said, should Miss Saigon therefore be censored or cancelled? The question is a distraction from the real answer, which is that censorship or cancellation does little to 
address the inequities of Broadway and Hollywood. Mm. Perhaps those of us who detest the musical would not be so upset if there were other stories about Asians or Vietnamese people that showed their diversity. If there were a thousand stories on stage and on screen about us, or even if there were just a dozen, we might forgive Miss Saigon. Yeah. And that is really kind That's of the, the, the central tenet, right? Absolutely. So, so Karen McIntosh cancels the show and then eventually um, equity gives in and allows the casting, right? Now I will say that, and I, I don't forgive this issue, right, but I do think that they have learnt their lesson. Yeah. They never, not once ever again was an, did not an Asian man play that role. Yeah, good. So literally as soon as Jonathan Price, after that, yeah. every single person for the 10 years I was on Broadway yeah. was an Asian man, good. right? So they did, I think they did learn their lesson to a certain degree yeah. and I don't know that that would have happened if like if that if like it had not been everyone would have learned then... that lesson like to win that equity battle and then still do that like yeah. not everyone would have done that no you know so I do think that I'm not saying props but like yeah there's no props there we should mention that yeah. you know like after that not a single white person ever played that role again yeah that's fair um so I think that it is worth mentioning that um what is interesting is that they also then didn't approve the casting of Leia Salonga. Yeah. So, um, of course, Leia Salonga's not British. She's Filipino. She's Filipina. Yeah. And so she also had to be approved by Actors' Equity. Yes. And they, um, in this case, they were submitting her on the basis that, like, no one else could play that part. Mm. And um, Equity denied it. But then there's, like, a step where it goes to arbitration. Mm. And that arbitrator ruled that actually she they're right. Yeah. They're right. Like only she could have played that part. Because they, they basically said that they saw thousands of women in America. Yeah. And, and they the, did. And and like to be fair, Leia Slonger is a pretty unique Prodigious. talent. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I, I sort of understand that. But yes. yeah, it was interesting that, that that actually then happened again. Yeah. Um it's and I I definitely am not qualified to comment in any real way, but like it just still feels like even if we fix the casting of this show, it doesn't fix the racism of the entire story. Yeah, like yeah. you just can't. What can we do about that? Yeah, you know exactly, exactly. I, I'm going to link to a few articles. Um, that one I mentioned. Yeah, that's a good article. I'm also going to link to one called "The Battle of Miss Saigon: Yellow Face Art and Opportunity," which is kind of like an oral history of the mm. show that was in the New York Times. Yeah. When the when the Broadway revival was coming out in 2017, it's also really interesting. Yeah. Um, and I'm also going to link to this article, and I've mentioned um Deep Tran before. She's an yeah. awesome journalist. Um, I think she might work for Backstage Magazine now, but uh, she's Vietnamese, like American. Um, Vietnamese American and uh, she wrote an article that went quite viral which is called I am Miss Saigon and I hate it Mm. and um, I'm gonna like just read a quick quote from that as well because I think it's relevant she said Many actors have defended Miss Saigon for the jobs it's provided for generations of Asian-American actors. Mm. But what kind of jobs are these? Playing stereotypes, people who hate their skin and idolise whiteness to the point of suicide. Almost 30 years after Miss Saigon first premiered, whitewashing yellowface and the white saviour narrative are still huge problems for Asian-American actors and audiences. And if there is no Miss Saigon or King and I on Broadway, Asian-American actors rarely get cast as leads or at all. Asian-Americans are still fighting an industry that would rather cast white actors to play us and would Rather, we play sidekicks and prostitutes, stereotypes that narratives like Miss Saigon have only helped per- per- perpetuate. Mm. Properties like Miss Saigon offer a way for white producers to feed us stereotypical scraps while continuing to starve us. Yeah. They profit off of our bodies while silencing our voices. Oh, fuck. Yeah. That's it. That's yeah. the primary issue, isn't it? Like- yeah, exactly. Exactly. <sighs> and I think that um, there's kind of 
nothing you can do about it in this case. Like we, we talk about reworking some of these older yeah, shows. Yeah, this isn't and like a revival of Oklahoma. No, exactly. You can't sort of turn it on its head. Like the central premise of it is an issue. Um, yes. And I kind of get why. Like I have to say in researching this, I didn't quite realise how popular this show was. Mm. Like that it had run for 10 years mm. on Broadway and 10 years on yeah. the West End like that. In a way, I knew it was big, but not that big yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Um, just because it wasn't one that I was that obsessed with or anything growing yeah. up. And so I I kind of I get why of those shows that were so massive, it's not one that sort of gets done. Probably mostly because of casting. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's, it would be a difficult one to cast. You, I mean, like we have talked about it before, but it's one that has come up as being suggested for our local theatre company to do. And I have vehemently objected well, you, to you, it. You can't, because like... we have a very white middle class um sort yeah, population of population yeah. where yes. we live and it would there would be a bunch of yellow face going on and it's just that's just not acceptable it's not and like we said it's not like it's not like we're avoiding this work because we just can't we can't find the cast for it also it's racist itself yes like, exactly there's no the, benefit the to putting this on is, yeah, that's right yeah i do think now talking about the popularity of it and this is purely just my opinion no there's no research to back this up but i think the majority of audiences watching it at the time would not have even realised how racist no, it was. No, definitely like, not. Would not have even considered that, like, yeah, white people are better. Like, a, a lot of those op-eds I read talked about sitting surrounded by weeping people who yeah. loved the show so much, yeah. right? Like it's just not. Even I read this really upsetting interview with Jonathan Price where someone brought it up, like an interview recently, where right. like, and he's like, yeah, everyone asked me about it and how I feel about it. And he's like, look, to be honest, at the time, everyone was multicultural in the cast. Like everyone was slightly like was not, no one was Vietnamese in the cast. So he's like, we just sort of thought it was fine. Mm. And I felt at the time like, wow, I understand that is, that is, a, that is properly his context at the time yeah. but it's just wrong it's still so wrong yeah and so to even think that they were all like oh well no one's Vietnamese so it's fine is yeah. like wow not really an excuse yeah, yeah look it's a tricky one because I was I was in that oral history that I mentioned you know there was an actor who'd played Chris a bunch and he talked about you know like all these Vietnam vets coming to see the show and how cathartic it was for them and stuff like this and it's like it's like yeah because it justifies the entire war yeah and like here's the thing that that wasn't their decision to enter that war, and no. they went through traumatic things in the in the name of kind of nothing, That's right? right? Yeah, and it's like, yeah, it probably nothing. was cathartic for them, and it's it's really hard because like just because something is problematic doesn't mean that it can't also like have helped someone or have like that's the hard thing right yeah. like yeah it's it's uh, yeah it's tricky or that like... someone could like love the music more than anything else mm. in the world like th- like as we said everything contains multitudes yes. like like something can be uh you know incredibly problematic and still be good art yeah. you know like it doesn't make you know like those two yes. things can coexist but I now do I don't necessarily like... think this is all round good art no. but but I do think that there is elements of it in there I just feel like I'm sorry, but there is no place in the world for art that makes some people feel good and some people feel like trash. Yeah. I don't think that's good enough. Yeah. And that's what this is. Yeah. Like you so yes, a couple of Vietnam vets felt good. I don't care. I'm sorry. Mm. But to make that like that quote from that poor Vietnamese woman yeah. that this this is it hurts her. Like yeah. why do we do that? Then? Yeah. Why do there are other ways to support vets? Yeah. Let's find those ways. Exactly. Do you know, like uh, Although, okay, so the popularity of it I think comes from the music. 
Yes, like I, think that's I agree. The point. It's the music. In the same way that people love the score of Les Mis. Like, it's right. like they know how to write an earworm, yeah. you know. They... Do you know, I actually think that the music in this show is more accessible than the music of Les Mis. Oh, interesting. I do. I feel like the music, so it's really catchy. Yeah. And I know Les Mis is too, but Les Mis I think is just a bit more cerebral. These are like pop songs. Yeah. Every single one is really like a standalone pop song. Particularly when you go back and listen to the, like, so um, I'm going to link to a few cast recordings on Spotify. So there's the highlights from the original London cast. So particularly yes. that one, which is the Leia Salonga, Jonathan yes. Price, um, that it's like, the, it's so like late eighties, like the yeah. synthy Poppy. kind of, it yes. is like pop songs. It is. The, and that just in a way, Les Mis wasn't. That's time. right. The 2014 yeah. revival, they sort of reorchestrated. It's, it's actually much more lush and I yes. would much rather listen to that. But, but I get that that original one is much poppier in yeah. that sense. I mean, yeah. don't get me wrong. Like I think this show, this show's nowhere near as clever musically as Les Mis, definitely. Like it, and it doesn't use themes and leitmotif the way that Les Mis does. Like there is not... some like repeating stuff though, isn't there? Yeah, but it's sort of just like here's the exact same melody again oh, interesting. sort of thing. Like, like it's just not quite as clever. Yes, okay, yeah. Um, but like I said, it just has such good standalone songs, mm. really good. And I also think that the types of voices that the show's written for are more palatable than the types of voices Les Mis is written yeah, for. Yeah, right. Like we're talking about a beautifully crisp, clear, um, modern female belt yep. that's infinitely listenable. Yeah. A gorgeous like tenor but yes. not, not a traditional classical tenor like a like an in the middle between yeah. a rock and a classical yep. tenor. And then you've got like John that like fuck. Like, yeah. That's just Soul beautiful. kind of, yeah, yeah. So that to me those voices are more listenable mm. than the Les Mis voices. Yeah, yeah, for so, sure. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. What do you think about the music? Yeah, look, I, I there are those songs that are like I, you know, we'll talk about some gateway songs in a sec and there are a few of those that I do really like and I could listen to. Um, they're just very like beautiful lush melodies, yeah. I would say. Not in the sort of um, way that it's like I could listen to that song again and no, again, but they're no. very listenable as yeah. you say. And I think... If you need to interact with this musical, you can listen to it. And yeah. it, it would be it's a very nice musical to listen to. So just go listen. Don't ever watch it. <laughs> yeah. There is the so they filmed the 2014 yes. cast um and they released it in cinemas and I think you can buy that on DVD. And you like you would tell people to watch that, right? Like that's a beautiful production. Yes, it is. Yeah. Like if you if and you wanted to see it, yeah, yeah. like uh, incredible. Like Eva as we mentioned is just astounding. I think we've mentioned it before, but her performance at the Tony Awards of um uh, I, last I, no, um, I give I give, I my give life it all for you. you. Give my life for you. Yes, yeah, that's like incredible, astounding. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so you should watch that too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah. So there's the so the the London highlights from the London are on there, and there's like so a lot of them they have the highlights or the full thing. Yes, um, but actually the highlights you get a lot of the main songs anyway. If you yeah. wanted to only listen to that, um, so there's the highlights. There's the complete symphonic recording, which is what they did a bit in the eighties and nineties, which yeah. is kind of like a mishmash of casts, like they did for Les Mis and stuff. So that's got. Peter Cousins as Chris, it's got um, – so it's got like partly the Australian cast mm. and then like Ruthie Henshaw as Ellen. Yeah. So it's a good kind of um, – Joanna Ample as Kim. Her rendition of Now That I See Her, it's just like oh. – Yeah. I love Ruthie Henshaw. And they changed the Ellen song, didn't they, for the revival? Yes. I think. Yeah. I think she has a different song anyway. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Um, and then the 2000, I've linked to the 2014 London Revival as well. Yeah, nice. Yeah. What about some gateway songs? Okay, so I went to put my gateway songs in our playlist and you had already taken most of them. Were they, were they 
almost exactly almost what you would exactly. have picked. So uh, yeah. my additions to yours, so obviously The Last Night of the World yeah. is just a beautiful yes. song. I've mentioned it here on this podcast before yeah. because it is beautiful. My mother-in-law calls it the solo saxophone song. <laughs> fair enough. Uh, fair enough. Um, and I Give My Life for You. Yeah. Uh, just literally so fucking beautiful. Yeah. So, like, of course they're on my list. But also I still believe is just a really beautiful duet. duet yeah. Uh, it makes Between me really happy. Yeah, yeah. God, it makes me happy. Every time I hear it. Um, I sang it when I was really young and it's just like the harmonies are gorgeous and yeah. Um, but I've also put Bridoy on there, not because I like it, but because if you're a boomer, it'll be your favorite song. <laughs> you must be talking to me because I did love that song when I was younger. Everyone did. Yeah. It's my mum's favorite. I, and, um, yeah. and that, it, did you put the hint, at, uh, not hint of battle, but did you put John Humaynard, I think his name yes, is, the I did. 2014 revival? The 2014. Yeah. He's like, it's a live recording, that recording. He does yeah. go a little bit, um, I think, I can't remember if he goes a bit sharper, a bit flat, but in his big note. Yeah. Um, but it's still like the quality of his voice his is just like. His voice is incredible. He's clearly wonderful. Um, if, it, if it was not a live recording, he would yes. have hit it spot on, I reckon. I've but put all of the versions that I've put on are the um, 2014. 2014. Yeah, same. Yeah. So the only other song I put on, um, aside from, so I put Last Night of the World and I'd Give My Life for You. The other one I put on is The American Dream, which is the engineer's big song where yeah. he, he's sort of fantasizing about what his life in America would be like, all this yeah. excess and stuff like that. It's obviously. He's such a sad character, man. Yeah, it really is. I read some really interesting discourse about him, about how he's like both over-sexualized and like, but also kind of sexless. Yes. Like there's this a kind like of like. A bit like the MC in yes, Cabaret. Yes, in Cabaret. Yeah. Like there's this kind of weird, yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, real sad. Just sad. Yeah. yeah. Like really caught in a, just an awful time yeah. in a, in a place where just terrible colonial powers are ripping your life apart. And how he's obsessed with America, but like, even if he got there, they would never accept him. That's kind right. of thing. Like there's all that sort Which of. Which we've proven. Layers of it. But yeah, yeah it's uh yeah, look. It's interesting. It's a, it's a funny one. I'm, I'm sure I'll, it, it'll be interesting to see if it comes back. So we were doing the US tour um, that was after Broadway and mm. it was due to end like mid-2020 and it really? shut down obviously due to COVID in like March and, and mm. they decided to end it early. So And the UK tour had ended a couple of years ago. So who knows if it'll come back in yeah. any capacity. It may come back in Australia again at some point. Who knows? That would be the next logical place yep. in terms of like the way the world works with yeah, major with musicals. Yeah, yeah. yeah, So it'll be really interesting to see if that if – but I, I kind of think the way that it performed both on London and the West uh, – both on London and Broadway this time – It might not. It probably has kind of run its course. Yeah. Yeah. I sort of hope so. Yeah. And like I'm not here to censor art. I really am not. No. But I just think, yeah, there are other there are other arts. Yeah. Well, and like here's the thing, not everyone goes into it knowing that it's racist. No. So then they take it as on face value. That's right. And it just like I'll never forget in history class at high school, we watched this, um, we were doing a thing about like the truth and um Is that the frontline? That is that it's that yeah. unit of work. Yeah, yeah. And it was this basically propaganda documentary about the Vietnam war mm. that was called like letters from home or something like that. And it was all these famous actors reading these letters and it was literally basically a propaganda film yeah. about the Vietnam war. And we had a substitute teacher that day and she was crying watching it, oh not realizing God. that we were actually watching it for, um, for manipulation for, of yeah, truth. Manipulation of truth. Yeah. <sighs> it was just a fascinating. Do you think she was a plant like there? <laughs> Imagine no, if, she was a common substitute teacher at our school. But no, imagine if the teacher was like, go in there and yeah. cry and then they'll realise how influential yeah. this shit really is. I've never forgotten that. 
No, that's crazy. Mm. But it's like at the time when Frontline came out, people believed that shit too. Yes. Yeah, amazing. Amazing. Yeah. And the chaser, similar stuff the happens. Chaser. Like satire as well. Well, that's yeah. satire, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So yeah, so Miss Saigon, look, if it's your favourite musical, Sorry. Um, just just maybe look inward um, yeah. and um, yeah. have a chat with yourself. Yeah, I'd, I'd be I'm not actually really very interested in why, but I would be interested in why. Why is yeah. that your favourite? No, I'm interested. Yeah, well, don't tell me is what I mean. Like I'm interested in you finding it out, but don't tell me about it. You know, there's like that thing where it's always like your fave is problematic. Like how many people now who like loved Army Hammer are like, oh, my God. Yeah, like, so true. He's done all this shit. Like it happens all the time. It how happens. many people where Woody Allen was their favourite filmmaker? I you know. know? Like, Thank God for Mandy Patinkin. And him and like, just wife. wearing delightful onesies yeah. and his wife being cute. Like, yeah. You're very lucky there. Oh, God. And yeah. let's hope it continues that way. Yeah, exactly. Don't disappoint me, Mandy. Yeah. And Stephen Sondheim. Can you imagine if something happened with Sondheim? Well, but do you remember when he wrote that yeah, um, letter do. about the Porgy and Bess revival? Like I was a little bit like, no, I no, no. No, you old idiot. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's a boomer, isn't he? He it's is. He's probably more he than sure a boomer. Um, but, yeah, anyway. So Miss Saigon, look, you know, like – yeah, it is what it is, guys. Yeah. It's uh, it's got some pretty songs, but ultimately, it's it's a no from me. It's very issue issue heavy. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks, Rich. <laughs> On that note, <laughs> that was fun. That was fun. And I will talk to you in two weeks. Oh, goodbye. <laughs> no, that's not the end of our podcast. It's me saying goodbye to you. I'm going to talk to them though. Okay. Hope you have a good week, everybody. Um, please um, like and subscribe <laughs> and give us a rating. Um, yeah, that would be good. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So this is such a side note, but I know you have quit social media sort of. Yeah. Um, part of our the Facebook group that you and I were both a part of um, for Murderinos. Yeah. Some um, an Australian murderino posted yesterday where she was like, "Does anyone here love musicals and true crime? <gasps> because I'm obsessed with musicals and I want to talk to someone who loves musicals and murder." And I almost tagged you in it, but of course I can't tag you in yeah. things. But I was almost going to be like, "Yeah, come and listen you to should. my favorite musical, the podcast made by Murderinos." Yes, you should <laughs> do that now. I'll do it on your account. Okay. <laughs> sure. Anyway, everyone's just listening to our conversation now. Uh, thanks for that, and goodbye. And we'll see you for a mixtape next week. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Bye.